let's make this a show. Let's make this a show. Um, let's make this the show that legends are made of. <laughs> well, we're going to have to be pretty f***ing entertaining to get us up. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that really does bring you great Catholic conference. I would, I dare say, the podcast that brings you the greatest Catholic podcast conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and... Um, and uh, befuddle, looking somewhat befuddled there is my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Um, Ed, you're looking a little befuddled there. No, I mean, we're coming out of the gate strong here, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm along for the ride. Would you describe this as the premier Catholic podcast? I, I would. I would describe this. This is, I would say, I know I don't know a lot about podcasts, as it were, um, which you, you would think maybe I'd learn a little something about this before I decide to, you know, predicate my living upon it. I don't, I don't know as much about podcasts as I probably ought. But yes, I would say that this is indeed the premier Catholic podcast when it comes to podcasts that are uh, composed of two two people talking. Now, is it reasonable to compare us to the Bible in a year? No. I mean, listening to us for a year will not give you as much familiarity with the goings-on of Absalom and Abimelech and other such figures. Um, But uh, I would say that in our category, two people talking about the news that you need to know. In an unstructured and totally unscripted way. Unstructured and totally unscripted way. We are the tops. Yeah, I think think within within a sufficiently narrow, uh, narrowly defined band, we are... We are we are definitely legends in our own chairs, JD. I'm I'm confident of that. We are what happens, Ed, when two people decide to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. See what I did there? No, but I I, I immediately understood there was a reference going on, but I just don't oh, know. Good. I'm so glad to hear it. There used to be a television program, Ed, on it. Well, let's back up. Um, there used to be a, a, a cable television uh, channel called... Nope, let's back up. There used to be a service called cable television um, by which uh, a set of channels were bundled together uh, and then sort of streamed into the house, not vis-a-vis the internet, but vis-a-vis the cable that brings you the internet. And uh, among those channels was a, a, a television channel called Music Television, which later became called MTV. And uh, MTV initially was, as you might imagine, a television channel about music. It aired music videos, which are these sort of YouTubes, pre-YouTube. And eventually they moved away from um, music as such and became sort of a a reality television um, network. And one of the very first reality television programs on MTV, on cable television, uh, was a show called The Real World, in which people... Um, it, it follows actually now. Now it follows a very sort of formulaic um, reality show premise, but at the time it seemed revolutionary. Um, in which people um, live together in a house and are filmed in the house and um, work little jobs and have little tasks and have various kinds of drama um, that we, the uh, viewing audience, were uh, privileged to observe. I see, and and that was the sort of catchphrase of the the whole thing. Yeah, this is the story of seven people in a house. Let's see. This is the story of seven strangers picked to live in a house and work together and have their lives taped to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. It's the real world. I see. So this is, uh, I would say this is the real world of Catholic podcasts. Yes. I, yes. A hundred percent. Were the people (laughs) trapped in the house? 
No, they weren't trapped in the house. They would go on outings together, excursions. They would oftentimes go to clubs or bars and sort of make appearances. They would go to concerts. They, they we were... should go to clubs. You and I know we don't. We never go to clubs. I, I'm going to say something about clubs. Um, my entire life, I have wondered how it is that people find or know about clubs. Like when I was in high school, sometimes kids would do this thing. They'd say like, "Oh yeah, we're going to go to the city and hit a club," and I, I never even understood how they knew where a club was or what it was or what to do. I mean, I, the world, the club world is entirely foreign to my experience. Um, it, it is pretty much alien to mine too. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I think I went to nightclubs three times that I can remember once when I was 16, didn't much care for it. Another time when I was 18, didn't much care for it, didn't much care for it. I mean, it was a different class of nightclub, but it, I it still didn't care for it. And and again, when I was probably 21, 22 and the experience was unrewarding each time, but I feel, I don't know why. But I feel that no longer being a teenager and us being as we are approaching 40, the experience of us going to a nightclub now would at least be hilarious. I think that our listeners actually would would love it. And I genuinely believe that somewhere out there, I, I do not know where, I do not know how, I do not know why it happens, but at some conference or event or camp oriented towards Catholic young adults or Catholic college students, they put on, I'm willing to guess, a sort of nightclub evening in which I, some... I, d- spoiler, J.D., it's called the Synod of Bishops, and they've already done it. <laughs> My point is we could do call you it remember that with the disco balloon kind of drop a, at the end like, of the I synod. do remember disco balloon drop at the Synod of Bishops. If we go to some sort, of a, some sort of thing like that, we could call it work, we could write it up, it would be very, it'd be great, very great. It w- but it that's would in be. the future. I will say that there was a period here at the Flynn House where we listened to a lot of Kesha, and that was... The time in my life when I felt the, the closest connected to the club world. What is Kesha? Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, okay. Because where I went this week was not to a club, but to uh, something nonetheless exclusive. And I, I want to talk about it just before we get started on the show because I had a really cool experience this week, and um, uh, and it was an, a, a, and it was a visit to um, to the University of Mary, a Catholic university in Bismarck, North Dakota. And uh, before I tell you about it, I want to just say, as a matter of uh, uh, a full disclosure that um, I'm about to say uh, nice things about the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. I'm not being paid in any way or compensated in any way to say nice things about the University of uh, Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota, although I was compensated, um, you know, or received a remuneration to give a speech there. However, I have fulfilled the contractual obligations of that speech, and therefore the things I am about to say, I am going to say with no conflict of interest whatsoever. Okay, full was- disclosure, I haven't received a red cent from anybody connected with any of this, so I'm going to be completely <laughs> free with my reactions. Fair enough. Uh, so yeah, so I so I went I went to the University of Mary this week because I think you know, and uh, um, it, the reason I want to talk about it is because it was a really interesting place that was not as much on my radar as in certain ways I wish it had been, um, and, and here's why I was under the impression Ed that the University of Mary was um, was another uh, you know small devoutly Catholic um, liberal arts college in the vein of my alma mater, the Franciscan University of Steubenville or Benedictine College or... Um, you thought this you was TAC to... of the Plains, basically. No, I didn't think it was TAC of the Plains because I didn't think it was a sort of great books. You, you know, Thomas Aquinas College in California is a very, very small school and all the classes are held uh, seminar style and, you know, they're... the. the Everybody majors in the same thing, which is effectively reading great books, um, you know, and so it's a it's a different kind of thing. I thought it was more in the vein of sort of Steubenville or Benedictine, a sort of, um, you know, mainstream little liberal Catholic liberal arts college. 
that that was you know seriously serious about the faith and the prescripts of ex court ecclesia and these kind of things. But what I found out that was really interesting about the University of Mary that I thought was really kind of cool is that um, it's not actually and sort of by design it's not another Catholic liberal arts school. Its majors are sort of concentrated in areas. Um, uh, in professional areas. So there, you know, it has, um, for a small Catholic college, it has a relatively sort of robust engineering school where kids are majoring in things like um, construction management. And it has like a kind of a robust physical therapy um, program. And the, design, the the intention of the thing is to be a place that is, you know, deeply and seriously Catholic and cares about human formation. And I kind of met some of the people who work in the human formation side of things, and they were, you know, serious about, about the faith pillar readers all, um, serious about the faith. Um, but the design, the, the intention in the classroom is sure, you know, you, you will learn about the faith here and you'll learn about what it is to be a person, these kinds of things, but more concentration on, um, the kind of career degrees for which a person might otherwise go to large land grant state university. So because of that sort of a, a different vibe. And I think in a certain way, pulling different kids, not just sort of replicating, as I say, the sort of Steubenville, Benedict and Ave Maria sort of paradigm that you cool. often see. Oh, yeah, I, was, I like was, the sound of that. I well, I'm a big believer in practical education, especially at the tertiary level. I, um, I don't think there's there's not a lot of it going around, and it's often, as you say, concentrated in the large public provided uh, state schools. And I mean, it, um, th- there is nothing you can study that cannot and should not be studied from a, a Catholic or a Christian perspective. Uh, and I say this because, as we've seen in the last couple of years, it's possible to. Um, study mathematics from a sort of strange new way of thinking where two plus two equals five or can equal five. And, you know, we, we've seen all sorts of moves along this line. So uh, I I would be very interested to hear more about a, a Christian approach to mathematics or a, right. um, you know, a, a Christian understanding of engineering or or architecture or civil planning or, you know, whatever else. Or how ethics and Christian anthropology are um, integrated into the study of something which is very um, practical and tactile, like physical therapy or something like right. that. Well, right. Well, I can see something that you know, like physical therapy having a, 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 an implied spirituality behind it, not in the sense of you're doing something spiritual, but the idea that you care for the body, you care for the soul, the, the, the whole person is a continuous thing. You know, we're not Manichaeans who believe that the soul and the body are totally separate and all that stuff. So no, I, I, I can see room for a Christian approach to all of these things. I'm interested. I want to know more. But yeah, I probably we'll will some... never learn it because they wanted you, not me. So, you know, well, whatever. Maybe we'll do some reporting about it. It wasn't, as I say, this is not a commercial. Um, uh, I just thought it was, it was not like, um, it was not like the kind of Catholic universities, which I have sort of seen before, which in, in which I myself was formed. And I thought that was neat. On the other side of the coin, Bismarck, North Dakota is a tundra. I mean, this place, Ed, this place was a tundra. Um, it was... Super cold and super windy, and the 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 college is on kind of a hill, um, and so um, you know it's not protected from the. Can you have hills the, in tundra? Uh, I suppose you can have rolling. You can have gently rolling hills and still be a tundra or I a see. taiga, maybe or something. I'm I'm, I'm trying right now to effort the actual technical definition of a tundra, but all I'm getting is things to do with pickup trucks, which is really annoying me. A vast, flat, treeless Arctic region of Europe, Asia, and North America, in which the subsoil is permanently frozen. Now, I think that, I mean, you've just, that is North Dakota, is it not? I mean, that is the state of North Dakota. <laughs> but the kids, it was kind of interesting. In virtually every building, there were sort of these big roaring fireplaces all around. And the kids kind of moved 
sort of happily and very quickly, almost in a sort of elf-like sprightly fashion, the, the, the students who attend the University of Mary, who are themselves of many, um, moved in an almost elf-like or sprightly fashion between the buildings, seemingly not uh, affected by the cold at all. Whereas I, you know, each time I walked out of the building in which I was housed, nearly fell over, and and I could lie in my bed in the little in the little guest place where I was staying and listen to the wind like whip across the plane. It was quite quite cool, actually. It sounds at once sort of almost picturesque in a sort of bleak way, uh, and also terrifyingly cold. Okay, now before we move on, because we have lots of things we have to talk about in the news, but before we move on, I want to say something about what has just happened. Oh, no. You and I have been talking now for the better part of 15 or 16 minutes, and we have not really gotten to the meat of what we want to talk about now. And there are some listeners of this show who um, who fast forward to the meet and who are the type who will write to us and say, and, and we get this from time to time and we understand, but who will write to us and say, hey, guys, get to the meat of the thing. I'm a little bit, you know, less interested in 15, 16, 17 minutes of the, of, you know, talking about the various things which you were just talking about, get to the meat of the thing. That's why I listen. And I get that and I respect that. There are an equal number of listeners who, if we did not do what we just did, would write to us and say, boy, that was a little dry. I really want to hear about your lives and what you guys are up to. I love the banter. It's wonderful. So if you are inclined to write to us about one of those two things, just please know that somewhere out there is an equal and opposite force kind of giving us the equal and opposite feedback. And so we and just we have do the an thing equal that we do. need for both of your subscriptions. We and so we're trying very hard to keep you both happy. So we're, what we're going to do is put into the show notes, since we've been bantering for a little while, and maybe we'll just start doing this regularly. We'll start putting into the show notes when we get to the meat so that if what you want is the meat, you can jump. And if you, if you, if you like, you know, the repartee, as it were, uh, you have the opportunity for it. Although we're going to probably truncate this episode's version because I'm now concerned that I'm going to oh. get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> It'd be funny to truncate it, but still leave that and have everybody wondering. Everybody what wondering was. what I did. Um, okay. What we need to talk about, Ed, are two things. Um, because there are two things that are happening in the news that we have been covering with in, um, some degree of intensity and seriousness. And, uh, and I want to talk about both of them. The first thing that I want to talk about is a report that came out um, in Germany today from the Archdiocese. We're recording this show on Thursday. You're probably going to listen to it on Friday. But the, that, that came out today, Thursday, January 20th, from the Archdiocese of Munich and Freising um, in, uh, in Bavaria. And it was a, a sort of an independent—it um, was a, a report commissioned by the Archdiocese, but a sort of independent report conducted by a law firm, which did a sort of a review of the Archdiocesan handling of uh, clerical sexual abuse claims going back uh, all the way to 1945 and then kind of topping off at about 2019. So it was just a real thorough comprehensive look, the kind that a lot of dioceses at this point have done, released in these kinds of things. But this one is of particular interest because from 1977 to 1982, Ed, who was the Archbishop of Munich and Freising? Uh, that would be Joseph Ratzinger. Joseph Ratzinger, a young man of great renown who um, shortly thereafter uh, went to work in the Roman Curia and eventually was elected to lead the Roman Curia as Pope Benedict XVI. And uh, the report... Um, has made headlines everywhere. I keep seeing it everywhere because um, the the investigators looked at the period in which um, Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, was the Archbishop of Munich and Freising and came away with some um, uh, sobering conclusions, I think. Uh, they did. And I mean, you know, flipping through the report and I have I've done my best to scan it. It is lengthy. It's very, very lengthy and it is in German. It's like nearly a thousand pages and it mm-hmm. is in German and it is covering more than 80 years of time. Um, So with those caveats placed around my ability to get my head around the whole thing, I would say that it is um, depressingly 
we we keep seeing the same sort of patterns emerge whenever we see a diocese or uh, a, the bishops of a country or a region release similar reports covering similar time periods, which is we you see patterns of problems that go unaddressed, the same way of moving people around when they should have been removed entirely and forever from ministry, um, the same lack of the use of canonical procedures that the church had in place for the commission of various criminal offenses under canon law, including the sexual abuse of minors or others. Um, and and yet here we are again. So before we break it down, can we just can you just talk about what does it say about Benedict the Sixteenth? Okay, so what it says about Benedict the Sixteenth and Archbishop Ratzinger, as he then was, which is that the, it identifies what it says is four cases where um, his handling of um, priests accused of sexual misconduct uh, with minors could be considered misconduct in his, in in his handling. Um, one of them, which sort of was a big deal in the German press earlier this month, I think it was Desite or Desight, I should say, Desight um, had a big feature on on this. And basically, what had happened was there was a priest who was a priest in another diocese. He was um, found to have sexually abused a minor. He was moved to the territory of the Archdiocese of Munich, basically to go to therapy. Asterix, here we go again with the therapy instead of the prison, um, moved to the Archdiocese of Munich to go to um, therapy and was basically given a place to live in a rectory while he was going to therapy. And the understanding was that he would not be in ministry. And then sort of two years later, I think, uh, he he was being used for ministerial purposes in the archdiocese. I don't think he was. I don't think he was given a parish, but he was being. You know, so he, was, he had faculties and he was doing supply. Yeah, work he was he was doing supply work basically, and so he then eventually went on to abuse again in 1986. This is after Ratzinger had left the diocese, um, and basically Desight said that um, Archbishop Ratzinger allowed a pedophile basically to to go into ministry in his archdiocese and that this guy then went on to reoffend. Um, the response of the archdiocese has been right from the beginning that Ratzinger had no knowledge of this, that Ratzinger knew the guy had come into the archdiocese, knew he was living in a rectory, knew he was not to be given ministerial assignment while he was going to therapy, but that he was not part of the decision-making process that basically gave this guy faculties to do supply work. Um, Ratzinger's old vicar general from the archdiocese at the time has made I think at this point, more than one public statement taking total personal responsibility and saying, no, this was my call and it was a, it was an error and I shouldn't have done it and I'm sorry and, you know, we didn't – the process should have been completely different and everything like that. And, and with the other cases, the other cases were cases in which – at least two of the other cases were cases in which priests were um, – faced actual criminal charges in civil law for sex abuse of some kind – and um, despite facing those criminal charges and being sanctioned criminally, were able to um, continue in ministry in the in the archdiocese even even after that, and didn't face a canonical process or anything like that. So those are all very serious charges. And Benedict uh, says he didn't have knowledge of those things and has maintained that he you know act, acted rightly. And others have said that as well. The, the 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 attorney who presented the report today said we know that. Pope Benedict has said that he was unaware of these things, that he was ignorant of what had happened. And they said, based upon the communication we reviewed, we found that in, implausible, which is a relatively strong response. You know, it wasn't a sort of like we want to, we're, you know, there could be differing or something. I mean, he certainly took a position on it to say we don't think that's plausible at, at all. 
you know. Right. And I mean, what it boils down to, at least as near as I've understood it, and again, we're reading a thousand page document in a hurry in German, uh, is that, you know, there are internal memos that say, you know, CC the archbishop's office or CC the archbishop's desk or whatever. And there's a question of, you know, and, and this is not the first time we've run into this in the church, you know, when does it mean that the archbishop himself will have seen a thing? Or have read a thing, or whatever else, or does it just mean make sure this goes in his files in you know the archbishop's office or whatever? I don't know. The the other thing is, um, you know, uh, it, it's a this is a this is a serious set of allegations against um, now Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth, and and should and should be taken very seriously, and is I think you know pot- potentially disheartening for a lot of people. And at the same time, I think we have to kind of look at what he might have been expected to do, what. Um, the law of the church provided for him to do, and not as a means of, of making excuses, um, and not as a means of saying, you know, I don't like when people say, well, we can't judge the past according to the future, according to the present, and therefore, you know, he just did what everyone else did, if that's the case, and therefore there's no no condemnation there whatsoever, or no culpability there whatsoever. But I, I do think there is a way in which understanding the context helps understand what might have actually happened, you know, um, especially given... Part of the reason why we got a new Code of Canon Law in 1983 is because there was real uncertainty about how to apply the 17 Code in these kinds of situations, and especially after there was a process in the civil court, whether a bishop would have begun his own ecclesiastical process. I mean, there's not yet sufficient clarity in the Church's law about these things, and there was less sufficient, there was less clarity in the Church's law about these things at that point. And so— um, I disagree. Okay. I absolutely disagree. I I absolutely agree with the premise that we should not judge the past by the standards of the present. But I would say that there there was no, at the legal level, ambiguity about what law was in force or what processes were to be applied in this period of, say, 1977 to 1982, prior to the promulgation of the 83 Code of Canon Law. Um, the Holy See had been clear repeatedly over and over again. There is the 1917 Code of Canon Law. It is in force. It is in force until it is abrogated and something else is brought in its place. If particular provisions of the 1917 code are going to be removed or suspended, we'll let you know. I don't mean because the code was being revised. Um, I, I don't. I don't entirely mean because the code was being revised. Although I suppose I do mean that. But I, but I mean, you know, given that um, there was a process in the civil courts for these two priests, let's say, uh, given that. Do I think there might have been uncertainty about beginning an ecclesiastical process in 1981 with the prospect of the code? I I, I think that there are historians of canon law who would say, yeah, there was sort of uncertainty about the ongoing applicability of these procedural norms kind of in in the lead up to the 83 code. I do. There was that attitude, but it was a bad attitude. I'm not trying to make excuses. It was wrong. Again, I'm not trying to make excuses at all. No, but I'm saying this. I've I've looked at this and I've read – you did your dissertation on precisely the, these areas of penal law, so far be it for me to um, to, to to second guess that. Well, no, I'm, I'm not not just that, but I mean, you've I, I'm sure you've read as many diocesan files from that period of time as I have in in different jobs, and yeah, there was sort of this climate of, well, I, you know, we don't want to we don't want to go through the trouble of like trying to apply a law that we all know is going to be. Uh, you know, replaced in, you know, any minute now, quote unquote, you know, within a 10 year period. But that doesn't. And we have said this right the way along the line that excuses exactly no one that the law was the law. In fact, the law was harsher in the 1917 code. It was far more strict. There was, for example, no statute of limitations on the sexual abuse of minors as a crime in the 1917 code of Canada. Well, law. not just in the 1917 code, but in Crimen Solicitaciones. Yeah. Right, so the 1917 Code of Canon Law and these things is accompanied by an instruction from 1962 that gives 
uh, an instruction not unlike Dignitas Canubi that is an instruction, <laughs> you know, a kind of uber instruction that gives a, a, a effectively a broad process for, for outlining these things. I, I just, I, I, it was my impression that there was some uncertainty about the degree to which crimen solicitaciones was still applicable and the degree to which even the 17 processes could be used at that time. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. And, and what I don't want to do by any stretch of the imagination is make excuses for Joseph Ratzinger because he's Joseph Ratzinger. I, I, I don't want to do that. No, I, I'm, I'm just saying I, but I don't want to impugn him. I don't want to entirely sort of, um, uh, I don't want to entirely sort of indict him either because, you know, because there's, a report without trying to understand the context with more expertise than has otherwise come to it. Whatever hesitation I have in expressing a strong opinion on this particular case, it is only to do with my inability to feel I'm completely up to speed with the details because they're oh, the German. facts. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, in terms of the general premise of what a bishop could or couldn't be reasonably expected to do canonically between the years 1977 and 1982, I would apply exactly the same standard and have exactly the same reaction to Archbishop Joseph Ratzinger as I would to any bishop anywhere else in the world, including several American dioceses where I have expressed myself on this podcast in previous instances um, in free and frank terms saying that this was an absolute dereliction of duty and an absolute failure to apply the law. It was a failure of governance. And I yeah, I don't. I don't see there being any difference. I'm not aware of there being any specific circumstances in Germany that um, made the made the code of canon law inoperative during those years. Okay, I, I all right. I'll, I'll take that. What there was, and I think you will agree about this. And again, I'm not. I don't want to make excuses for Benedict the Sixteenth because he's Benedict the Sixteenth, or for any other reason. Um, what there was was unquestionably an antinomianism that meant of that time that meant that the law of the church was very generally not. Regarded and now we we regard that antinomianism as a failure, which led to grave and very serious sure. Injustices. But was there not? A, and again, this is high, I, uh, which doesn't keep, mitigate personal culpability either for a person, especially for a person who would become the prefect of the congregation. Well, I was going to say, wasn't he involved in the code revision commission at the time? I, I would think so. I'm pretty sure he was not only involved. I think he was on the chaitis for the redrafting of the book on penal law. No one knew better that the 1917 code of canon laws, penal processes, and norms were still in effect than Joseph Ratzinger. Okay, so you you, you feel very strongly at an, and I again, I'm I don't want to dispute this um, but you feel very strongly that if, if indeed the summary of the report and the, the sections of the report that we have read accurately reflect reality that that would be a very grave and serious indictment of of uh, of the Holy Father Emeritus. Yeah, on a par but I mean, but unfortunately and even more on par with the very grave and serious indictment that could be made of nearly any diocesan bishop of the period. Yes. And so part of the challenge becomes, what do you do with that? I mean, in a certain way, what will come out of this? Nothing, right? Benedict says, I don't remember that. Uh, it, and, it is, and Benedict, well, he says he doesn't remember that, not in the sense of, I can't recall, in the sense of, that's not how I remember That's it. not how I remember it. He sent them 80 pages of testimony to, the, to, you know, to, to explain the way in which he recalled things. So Benedict said, this is the way that I recall it in, in some degree of detail. Um, and, uh, and they have said, well, that we don't think that stands up to the records that we've scrutinized. I do not think uh, of Benedict XVI as a person who um, would be lying to cover his ass or otherwise. But um, here we have a, play, a, a, peer, a, a situation where the facts are disputed about something which exists in an independent commission report. Um, in a concrete way, what will come out of this? Um, nothing. You know, it's not as if the, the criminal charges will come out of this or something like that for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's not as if criminal charges will come out of this. Certainly, um, this... Uh, charge laid against Benedict XVI, which is serious, will 
um, be carried as a part of his legacy um, for, for many, many people and should be afforded into a part of his legacy. But the point that you make is a very interesting one because um, if indeed the law was clearer than I had originally suggested, um, and no, you, well, you know, hang on, hang on. the law was clear. The okay, um, if indeed the possibility of beginning a penal process in 1981 or 1982 was um, was was understood to be something that would make sense. Um, and uh, and and I'll give you that. I, I'll give you I'll give you that one. Um, if indeed that um, the kind of failure that this represents, a, a failure to apply canon law um, as written and as instructed by the Holy See and as emphasized by the Holy See, um, is uh, it was at the time um, a wholesale sort of a wholesale failure, which is to say the failure of very many individuals all at the same time. This was a common kind of failure at that time. I would go beyond common and I'd say it was a generational failure. It was a generational failure to the point where if indeed I think if he someone began a penal process at that time, um, there might even be a sort of what are you doing to the whole thing or, or what, you know, from, from Rome even. I think the prefect of the CDF or SCDF as it was at that point was Cardinal Shaper. And I'm not sure he would have said that, but I'm, did, did, I'm did, um, saying I'm not sure. By virtue of crem and solicitaciones, did the CDF or the president, yes, was the CDF that had competence to deal with these things at that time? I think so. Crem and solicitaciones, I think, gave the CDF competence to deal with Yeah, these I think so. I, I think. I think. Either way, doesn't matter. It, the diocesan bishop was perfectly had the right. had the authority yeah, so, to. The- so the question becomes again with a sort of generational failure, in which there will not be criminal charges or anything like that. So what do you do? What do we do with that? Other than to look at it and to say, "Good God, this was a a wholesale sort of cultural." failure in which there is also the failure of individuals. Well, so this is exactly what I was starting off to say at the beginning, which is when reading a report like this one, um, you have this sort of tension of reactions between saying, oh my God, how, you know, hundreds of victims, nearly 175 priests. Not not connected to Benedict XVI. Not connected to Benedict XVI. In general, this report over 84 years or whatever it was into the Archdiocese of Munich and Freising. Um, you know, this huge period of time, this huge number of victims, this, you know, huge number of offenders, you know, it, it, you have the, you, you know, the same thing we got the first time we read, you know, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, intention with that is the kind of, well, what did we expect? You know, what, that we are dealing with, you know, the ongoing process of a generational reckoning with what the church did wrong and terribly and systematically wrong for a long period of time, particularly for about 25 years between sort of give or take 1960 and 1985, I would say, was the worst part, especially during the 1970s. And, you know, what What do you do about that? What do you do with this? You, I, I don't know. I hope that there is... I mean, I don't think I'm already starting to see this, which is depressing, which is people, you know, sort of uh, lining up on this, basically lining up on where they sit on Joseph Ratzinger, where they land on Joseph Ratzinger or Benedict XVI, which is ridiculous because what people should be taking away from all of this is it doesn't matter where you think of yourself on the ecclesiological spectrum. All your heroes are in some way tarnished 
by this period of the church. The church universally has a call to repentance here. And yeah, a call no to less learn. John Paul II, who didn't adequately oh, address oh, no. Maciel yeah. by any stretch of the imagination, did, wasn't willing to believe things about Maciel, who is in a certain way indicted for um, uh, not requiring more serious investigations of the McCarrick allegations by the McCarrick report itself. Yeah. You know, these kinds of things. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The, 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 yeah, there are, no, there are no heroes that I'm aware of in church leadership in these years, that everybody has got some decision that they have caused to look back on with regret and probably shame i'd like to talk about in that context my own experience kind of working in diocesan administration and how how i look at certain things i don't know if i've talked about this on the show before or not but maybe my experience would be a little bit elucidating Maybe, maybe it wouldn't um you know i i uh finished my degree in canon law in in uh 2006 and went to work for um the Archdiocese of Denver, and subsequently went to work for the Diocese of Lincoln, and um, and and did a fair amount of consultation with other dioceses at the same time, largely because I am found that I was pretty good at sort of in, internally addressing matters of penal law, and was pretty good at sort of understanding what processes needed to be addressed and move forward in those kinds of things. And and when you can lawyers who listen to the show or, or chancery officials listen to the show will know that, you know, once people sort of know that you know how to do a thing, then you're often sort of asked to help out with a thing in another place or something like that. So I did a fair amount of consultation for other dioceses as well. And so, I mean, f- for, I, I would say a period of uh, 10 years or so, I just worked on a lot of um, what we call priest personnel cases, cases involving the moral failures of priests in one way or another, the, the, the misconduct of priests in one way or another. And, um, I did not have during that time an awareness at all of the way in which imbalances of power impact the relationships between adults. I did not have at that time an awareness of the way in which the pastoral office um, impacts relationships between adults. I did not have at that time an awareness of the way in which um, the woundedness that often drives people to seek spiritual counsel and spiritual healing also makes them particularly vulnerable to seeing themselves abused again or exploited again or harmed again. And uh, you might say, are you kidding me? How did you not have an awareness of that? Um, and you might especially say that sort of if you, um, uh, you, you, might, you might especially say that if you're a woman, um, you know, you might especially say that if you yourself have experienced kind of a, a sense in which power was sort of uh, exploited in, in a way that felt um, or, or in a way that was um, inimical to the flourishing of the human person. But I did not have an awareness of those things. And I was not unique in that way. I never talked to anybody who worked in priest personnel issues who had an awareness of these things. It was just not a part of the conversation. It was not on the radar of the conversation. And um, in 2018, well, as sort of the, I guess, it sort of as people began to talk about imbalances of power, like with the sort of Me Too movement, um, you know, those things, I started to think about those things a little bit. But in 2018, when McCarrick happened, and uh, and then when I started talking with um, adults who had been in what I might, once might have thought of as sexual relationships with priests, but, but came to sort of see relationships that were deeply coercive or manipulated or manipulative or abusive, um, that my perspective on those things changed dramatically. And I'm not alone in that. That's true for many, many people who still sort of work in priest personnel issues across the board in the life of the church. There was not an awareness of those things. There, there were certainly people probably saying it, but it was not being heard. 
Um, and I indict myself for that as much as anyone else. There's not an awareness of those things. And now, and now there is, if you were to go back at things, which, um, cases, which I worked on, which everybody sort of regarded as what you might call a moral failure. This was not a canonical crime. This was not defined as a canonical crime. This was a moral failure, a relationship between consenting adults, these kinds of things. Now you might examine it in light of the things that we know. I might examine it myself in light of the things that we know and say, gosh, we did not fully understand the dynamics of this thing and the way in which that influences. But I don't know what to do with that for myself. I would just Uh, note at this parenthetically, most of this stuff was a crime in the 1917 code. Uh, okay, yeah. The 1917 code Consensual was stricter. or not, adults yeah, or not. Right. The 1917 code of canon law was stricter. And we've talked about the reason for that, that the 1983 code was intended to be a skeleton upon which yeah. diocesan bishops built um, more penal law and none of them did it, which is why Francis has given us again a stricter code. Um, but we had this period between 1983 and 2021 when Francis gave a new book six in which you had major sort of lacuna in the lacuna in the law and then a few instructions that were issued you know sacramentum sanctitatis to tell and others that were issued to kind of try and fill in some of those lacuna but not didn't fill it all the way in and i would argue that it's still not entirely filled in because the diocesan bishop is still close. required to develop penal law and various things and well, now and is still at war with itself over what some of the over definitions what, in their own law mean right exactly that's right so there are a lot of un- unresolved issues and and legal systems are always in need of reform period but, you know, what to do, I, I think about that, what to do with um, situations that I worked on, situations that um, well-intentioned people in many, many dioceses worked on, which we didn't appreciate those things. If you were to look back on them at this time, you know, at this time, you would say, gosh, you guys missed the boat. And the only thing I could really say is, yeah, we didn't know. And I and, and, I, and I, I have to make personal penance for that. And the church has to make, you know, sort of corporate penance for that. And at the same time, now we know and we need to do a better job. Um I think, I just think it's, as we continue to grow in our, in awareness of consent and these things, which is actually rooted in Christian anthropology, um, sort of what we do aside from sincere contrition, um, even for things which were, which were conducted in in ignorance or even for decisions which were made in ignorance, I I, I don't know. I, I don't know that there is a good answer to that. I, but I think it's unquestionably true that sincere contrition, even for things which were the consequence of ignorance is, is, is appropriate and penance, even for things which are the condition uh, of, um, uh, uh, of ignorance is appropriate. So, you know, to say, to look at this and say like, Oh, Benedict was a singularly, uh, Benedict was singularly um, irresponsible on these things or singularly malicious on these things. I, I don't think the report says that because the report in the context of, of all the other reports we've seen says bishops in this time were insufficiently addressing these things. And now we know here's another one. Um, and it, I think it, it calls for us the need to, uh, for the church to, to, to be penitent about that. Um, and only, I think, Benedict can make a decision about the degree to which he must be personally penitent for that and be personally contrite for that based upon his own examination of his conscience and what he knew and what he ought to have known and these kinds of things as well. I mean, what else can be said other than, you know, we must look at where we are and look, look at where we are, were, and be contrite for the injustices that were a consequence of that, many of which are serious. Well, and and hopefully the hard and painful lessons of a generational failure will lead to a generation, four generations on at this point, episcopally speaking, um, of leaders who will take this stuff seriously. Mm-hmm. And learn from these mistakes. And I don't think, I can't speak for Benedict uh, the 16th in 1977 to 1982, um, but I don't think that 
the ways in which things were handled in the past were always the consequence of simply being cavalier. No, I don't think it was a question right? of being cavalier. It was a question of not applying the law. It was a question of right. treating criminal behavior as a mental illness. Right. Which, by the way, to my way of thinking, insofar as I sort of examine my own conscience, I think I've always been scrupulous about the application of the law. It's the places where there, for my own conscience, I think it's the places where there were lacuna in the law or where... Um, it was, you know, where the, we now have an understanding about abusing office, you know, the canons about abuse of office that, that were in the okay, prior book Okay, but six. that's not what we're talking about. But that's not this. what we're talking about with Benedict. No, I'm just saying that for myself so people yeah. don't think that I myself was saying, oh, let's just send the guy off and not do canon law. I'm not saying that. But I think for guys who but, – but I think that was wholly and systematically what every bishop in the Western world was saying in 1977 to 1982. And so, of course, Benedict was doing it. And I bet you that um, – Bishops in the period in which Archbishop uh, uh, Wojtyla was the Archbishop of Krakow were also insufficiently applying the law. And so if a you know, forensic investigation of Krakow were done, we would find the same thing. You know, I, I bet you that we would find that too. And um, what we can do with that is be penitent and pledge to do better. And if – look, if Benedict willfully and intentionally said, look, I'm putting this guy back in ministry because I don't care – um, I, th I think that he, to whatever degree he has to be accountable for that personally, he has to be accountable for that personally. Um, I think what is more common was a perception that this thing had been addressed and therefore, well, in, 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 uh, an antinomian perception that this thing had been addressed and therefore we could move forward in a way that everybody was doing it. And we have to be sort of systemically uh, uh, penitent for that. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Even though we ourselves uh, were not um, alive for most of the period between 1977 and 1982, um, and therefore, you know, don't bear personal culpability. And certainly weren't the Archbishop meaning for don't don't bear personal culpability. We nevertheless are a part of uh, can make uh, can be a part of the corporate penitential solution because we're a part of the, the body itself. Yeah. Yeah. Part of what I'm saying is I don't know that we're going to hear more about this. I don't you know think there's I mean? more to hear. I, I don't either. There, I mean, there's there's nothing else to say. The independent report is in. No. They don't have any more information available to them there's nothing more to find they had you know total access to all the files benedict has sent in his own 80 some pages of his recollection of events and everything like there, there's no more to come out here this is just what it is yeah all right let's talk about something else that we are going to hear a lot more about oh um, you see now i'm a little annoyed jd why well how long have we been recording roughly 48 minutes i've got 50 but yeah okay and two hours ago what did I say I wanted to have be the you main? You said I really like the um, the thing that we're about to talk about, the Order of Malta, to be one of the main things nope, that we talk about. No, nope, I didn't say one of. I think I said the main event on the podcast oh. this week. Well, please. We have had the warm up. We have had the the, the we have had all the uh, all the fights on the warm up card, Ed. All the uh, all the fights. And now we have main nine event. minutes. So let's get ready to rumble. No, I don't think that's true at all. I think we'll probably pare down the show a little bit and. Um, I think we're going to go over because we need to talk about this in depth and it's important. So it is time for us to talk in a serious way. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready for the main event. Ding, 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 ding. Let's get ready to rumble. It's time to talk about the Order of Malta. Ed, what is going on? Plus, was there any way we weren't going to talk about Benedict Sixteenth on the day the report came out? I suppose not. I mean, I... This is me now continuing to talk about it, but I mean... <laughs> Like I said, you've done well making sure that this is all we're going to talk about. And I, I, I salute you. You've, you're very good at this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I had 
I, I had reader fatigue reading about this as it happened. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and, and this is not going to be the last, you know, we're, we're due for another independent report in Cologne. You know, we didn't even talk about um, what the report said about Cardinal Marx, Marx yeah. mm-hmm. who's, you know, already offered to resign sort of in a general way from some of his jobs uh, last year over sort of the general handling or mishandling of sexual abuse cases. And um, he was found to have two problem cases, Archbishop of Munich. But there are also there's another one or two, I think, in his former diocese of Trier, where there's still an investigation ongoing. I mean, we're going to hear more about this. We're going to hear more about this in Germany. As you said, we're probably going to hear more about this in Poland. Um, you know, we've had this big report in France uh, at the end Ladies of last year. Ladies and gentlemen, in this corner, the Order of Malta weighing in at many, many pounds. And in that corner, weighing in at probably a buck eighty-five. Cardinal Tomasi, let's get ready to rumble. Ed, what is going on with the Order of Malta? Now you're trying to force the transition, just as you get me talking about the other thing. Because <laughs> you're still talking about the other thing. Well, after 50 minutes of it, you know, I'm not going to just not finish the conversation. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, the Order of Malta is, well, it's it it's interesting. Uh, you know, it, uh, stories about the Order of Malta are a little like buses, J.D., you you wait um you wait forever no for one knows how they got him and danged if they know he knows what to do with it sorry that's a mule with a spinning wheel yeah no buses jd you wait for one for forever and then all of a sudden five come along at once um i have been fascinated by the constitutional crisis facing the sovereign military order of malta since 2017 and i've been writing about it since then um can you give an exp- the, a background explanation, um, a brief background ex- explanation for those who have not been fascinated since 2017 with the Order of Malta, what it is and what's going on? The Sovereign Military Order of Malta, J.D., is uh, an equestrian, not equestrian, but you know, militant religious order, militant in the, in the sense that in the old days, they did actually occasionally have swords. Um, religious Order of Knights. A nice- religious Order of Knights who have for some period of time in their history, actually the governance of the island of Malta, hence the name. Um, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta used to be the knights who ruled Malta. Yeah, I think they also ruled Cyprus for a while as well. Malta and Cyprus. Um, okay. Anyway, your impression of my wife is getting sharper and sharper as we have these <laughs> I'm just, conversations. I'm just, trying to keep, I'm just trying to help everybody stay on track here. Anyway, um, they are a unique or almost unique creature in international law in that since the Napoleonic Wars, when they lost the island of Malta to Napoleon and were forced into exile, they have been... Which is when? For people who don't know about Napoleon, that was the 1780s and 17... Let's just say since the 1820s, when things settled down. They have been recognized in international law by treaties with various countries and amongst various countries in the fallout of the Napoleonic Wars, which went on for a lot longer than you'd think. Um, oh, they don't even start until the eighteen early 1800s. Yeah, I don't know what I was saying, 17... They're still looking then. Early 1800s, after the French Revolution, you have the Napoleonic Wars, and then the... You're trying to keep us on track, and you want to do a deep yep. dive about the timeline of the Napoleonic Wars Yeah, because Wars if now. I just left that, somebody was going to jump on me for it. Then the, the, so then 1800s, it, early 1800s, they lose Malta. So 1830s, more or less... Okay. The Knights of Malta, having been forced into exile off of Malta, are still recognized by the major diplomatic powers as being a sovereign entity in international law, that they 
even though they no longer have control of the territory over which they used to have control, they are still recognized as being a sovereign entity in international law, that they conduct treaties, that they have ambassadors, that and they are... And the reason for thing- that is because they were... Because at that time, Europe would have thought about sort of sovereign things as ruling families, you know, who... who Acquired and lost territory, but it was the sort of families themselves or the institutions themselves which were sovereign. So it would be as if the Windsors were no longer um, – Her, Her Majesty was no longer queen of the United Kingdom, but we still regarded that family as a player in international law. Uh, yeah, although wrong royal family to pick because, for example, there are various – if, if we're going back in that – into that period of time and the idea in international, like you, monarchies would be recognized as the kings of a people. Mm-hmm, right. That it was personal jurisdiction, the king Bingo. of the Belgians, for example, stuff like Bingo. that. And so it wasn't tied, the idea of sovereignty and the idea of authority and rule was not tied to, well, do you control this particular postage stamp of land? Bingo. Right. Um, anyway, it, it is the same principle, by the way, dating, and it predates, for example, the recognition of, the sovereignty of the Holy See in international law outside of any territorial claims, because, of course, the Holy See at this time controlled a large swath of the Italian peninsula. So the sovereign military order of Malta has been a sovereign extraterritorial entity in international law for knocking on two centuries now. I mean, it's been sovereign of of everyone. It has been a recognized sovereign entity for centuries before that, but it has existed in its sort of current iteration as an, a, an or, a religious order of Catholic knights with sovereign personality and international law without control of a territory for almost 200 years. So much so that in 1994, it got permanent observer status at the United Nations. It has bilateral relations with, I think, 112 odd countries in the world it has its own Which means passports. like diplomats and embassies and yeah, they have full embassies they have full bilateral relations like basically they have a higher level of diplomatic relations with 112 give or take um, countries in the world than the united states has with say taiwan like it has a higher level of relationship than that um they issue their own passports they issue their own stamps they have their own license plates for cars like the the whole nine yards they also have a global charitable network. There are, you know, in that way, sort of a, a sovereign version of the International Red Cross in some ways that they operate because they have um, international healthcare projects operating in all sorts of countries where they are recognized as a completely sovereign and neutral player. So places that won't let in aid organizations that are perceived to be tied to one country or another or one um, NGO or another or whatever else will often let in the Order of Malta because they say, well, no, you guys are beholden to no one because you're your own thing. You have your own, you know, line of authority, you have your own government. You know, we're not, we're dealing effectively with another country by letting you into, you know, into this war zone. Okay. So that's what they are. That's a what they are. Order that's also a, con- uh, also a territorialist country. That um, That's, if you like, the sort of legal concept of them in international law. Now, they are also a Catholic religious order. They have three degrees of knights. The first degree of which are fully professed religious. They make vows of poverty, chastity, obedience. They are religious brothers. Warrior monks, if you will. Warrior monks. Um, And there are certain requirements that, for example, in order to join, it's a religious order for noble European noble family. So there have long been certain requirements that in order to sort of join the religious order, you have to be from a noble family and some other stuff too. Yeah, there are some nobler requirements. Um, They're waived in some circumstances and not in others. Let's leave that. Um, but the bottom line is they are a Catholic religious order as well. And they've had this unique constitutional arrangement for centuries where the Holy See has basically said, 
in terms of the sovereign military order of Malta, doing all of the governing things that you do as the order of Malta, you are totally independent of the Holy See. As a religious order, you have religious obedience owed to the Pope directly, but everything else is sort of, if you like, self-contained within the order. So if you are a fra, one of the professed religious knights of the first class in the order of Malta, you owe your religious obedience ultimately to the Pope, but only through your superiors in the order. Nobody else can mess with you or, you know, whatever else. The, the hierarchy religiously is insulated within the order according to its own constitution and code of canon law, basically. Which is a unique situation for a religious order. But then again, we have many unique situations for religious orders. We have autonomous monasteries who aren't, who aren't answerable to the diocese bishop in the territory in which they live. We have, right. you know, things which are diocesan right and, and, and pontifical right. So right. we have... In our history, we have developed all kinds of unique expressions of religious right. But to give you an idea of how independent of the Holy See the Order of Malta is, they have, under the terms of their current constitution, full diplomatic relations with the Holy See, which means when the Order of Malta and the Holy See want to have a talk, it's at the level of two ambassadors or at the level of, in the case of the Grand Master and the Holy Father, two heads of state, that they talk to each other as basically two sovereign nations talking to each other. That is, that is what's, so the current constitutional crisis with the order began in 2017. when basically what happened was in one of one in particular of the orders, healthcare projects in the world, I think it was in Burma. It was discovered that basically condoms had been being distributed under the flag mm -hmm. of the order. And this was a problem because the order is obviously a Catholic religious order and it's Catholic identity is central to its entire personality. And so there was an internal inquiry in the order um, there were those who laid the ultimate blame for this at the feet of the then Grand Chancellor and former Grand Hospitaller of the Order, Albrecht von Wuselager, who said he should bear ultimate responsibility for this. I don't want to get in the ins and outs of um, to what extent he could be argued to bear personal responsibility because, let us say, there are strong arguments for and against on both sides, and that's not really the important thing of this story for the purposes of people coming to it fresh. But what happened was there was this internal report on it. The Grand Master of the Order in 2017, Matthew Festing, basically ordered Buselager to resign over it as sort of, if you like, Prime Minister of the Order, Grand Chancellor. And Buselager said, no. He said, I want my due process in the Order. And Festing said, no, you're a knight of the second class. You have made a promise of religious obedience to me, the Grand Master of this period, and I am commanding you under religious obedience to resign. And he again refused. And he said, well, fine, you have violated your promise of obedience. And now I'm firing you. That's what happened sort of within the order. Then Buzelager and some of his supporters went to the Vatican and said, this was a violation or an abuse of the religious promise of obedience, that you can't compel someone under religious obedience to quit their job and then fire them for refusing to do so. You could, canonists could dispute that one way or another. I'm not an expert in religious law. I don't want to go there. But that's what happened is they basically said to the Holy See, this is unfair. And then the Holy See decided to get involved, which is really bizarre because under international law and the agreements between the Holy See and the Order of Malta, they had absolutely no right to do so. But Pope Francis appointed a special delegate, a special commission, and... Um, looked at this entire mess, and at the end of it, he forced the abdication of the Grand Master. He basically he forced out the, the sovereign head of another country, effectively. How? And this is the question that a lot of people have. If it's sovereign, 
how is it that he forced them out? And then later you're going to talk about how the Vatican is telling them to make a new constitution and drafting a constitution for them. But if it's if they're sovereign, either they're sovereign or they're not. Either the Pope can force out the head of state, the the, the head of the thing, or he can't. Well, the, and right? this is the, this is and this is the great tension in all of this. Um, and and I'll talk about that in a second. But for the purposes of winding up this narrative, the Pope forces the abdication of the Grand Master. Von Bülow is reinstated as Grand Chancellor. And the Pope says, I'm appointing a special delegate. You guys need to completely renew your constitution and code to examine how power and governance are operated within the order and redefine the responsibilities of the various classes of knights and this whole thing. And that's been rumbling on for five years now. It's seen another grandmaster elected and die in office, which was also inconvenient to the process. And a lot of factions within the order arguing about a lot of different things. But... To your point of how is it possible if the order is sovereign in international law that the Holy Father is able to appoint a special delegate to basically govern it as a viceroy and compel the abdication of the Grand Master and, and, and. And it's effectively this. The order is a sovereign entity in international law, but it's, an, it's, it's, like, it's a confessionalist state. The, the Grand Master, to take one example, is a head of state. He can be sovereign and independent, but he's also a good Catholic. And in this case, he's a good Catholic who's made religious promises of obedience to the Holy Father. And so the Holy Father can turn around and say, well, fine, you are. I'm not suggesting that I can tell you what to do as grandmaster of the sovereign military order of Malta. But as a Catholic and a Catholic who's made religious promises of obedience, I can tell you what you need to do because I'm the Pope. And if you don't do that, well, then I can't make the order of Malta do anything. But I can certainly affect its Catholic its status as a Catholic religious order. So, I mean, what we're basically seeing is the utter, the ultimate disapproval of um, the idea that you can have an explicitly confessional state that is, you know, absolutely a Catholic state that is politically independent of the Holy See, but religiously confessional of Catholicism. In the end, that's not a line you can really draw because what you get is the Order of Malta, where, sure, they might in theory be politically independent, but in the end. The Pope can intervene just because he has the religious and moral authority to command obedience, even if he doesn't have the political or legal prerogative to do so, if that makes sense. It does and it doesn't. I mean, it just points to what seems like was already a nearly untenable situation. I don't know that it was an untenable situation. In fact, it worked as many things do in international law very, very well for centuries. Everyone was very happy. The problem with this was that they decided to mess with it. And so what we've had happen in the last couple of weeks is we got hold of last week a copy of the Cardinal Delegate, Silvio Tomasi's draft constitution for the order, new constitution. And I was leafing through it. And to be honest with you, I was looking for other stuff. I was more interested in how the order was going to be reconstituted as a religious order rather than as, you know, it's sort of political governance function. But what we found was right up front, they had changed the legal definition of the order, if you like, in, in terms of its sovereignty. And it's, it defined it explicitly as a subject of the Holy See, which is basically saying there's been an annexation. <laughs> the order is no longer sovereign. The Holy See is sovereign over the order. The Holy but, See. But won't- isn't that just isn't that just um, isn't it the natural consequence of what has always been? In other words, you said this worked very well, but there was a tension and an underlying kind of um, there was a kind of underlying uh, wink nod about the sovereignty of the of the Order of Malta all along. If indeed this there has always been the possibility for this, it's just that the Pope has not deigned to interfere in the past, and now he has deigned to interfere, and so it has become clear that 
um, sovereign didn't quite mean what people thought sovereign meant. Is that true? No, I don't think so, because it's one thing to say that, well, the Pope could always intervene and basically take over the Order of Malta at will. But this is true of any near neighbor who is superior in... Oh, so just as it's true to say, well, Putin could... um, It's not as if we could say, well, Ukraine's never been sovereign because Putin could take it over at any minute. Um, How uh, Putin would do that using military force. The Pope is using another kind of power. Yes, it's coercive moral power. power, Right. When I say coercive, I'm not saying that in a pejorative way. Just um, the power is coercive. It has the power to compel. The power to compel, yeah. Um, Yeah. And so so you're saying effectively that kind... There's always a way in which... um, it is true that the biggest kid on the block in one way or another could always take over everybody, but that doesn't mean that the other things weren't sovereign, just that the other things could have been a threat to their sovereign. And this is true here, too. Exactly. Where the Pope had this moral power that now he has exercised or is, or was um, floating the possibility of exercising that would radically change the thing. Yeah. In the same way that we could, the United States could annex um, well, let me make, let me the make Bahamas a better... any time that we wanted to, but we don't annex the Bahamas. Sure. In fact, right. let me make a, a better parallel or at least a more apt parallel in the same way that the, and, and, and let's be clear, the order of Malta's sovereignty in international law is not something that depends directly upon the Holy See. Right. It started with the Holy See centuries and centuries ago because it's a Catholic right. religious order and that the Pope's ceded more and more autonomy to the order. But the order is currently understood in international law, which dates back to like 1835. It's not like the Holy See wrote them a thing that said, you could, you know, congratulations. You get to be sovereign. You get to be sovereign. No, 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 no. Lots of European powers all recognize the order of Malta as sovereign at the same time. So this is, I would say, the equivalent of the Republic of Italy looking over the shoulder of the Holy See and saying, well, you know, you are sovereign, but you don't seem very capable of managing your financial affairs yeah, just sovereign. now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't really do it without us, because if the Bank of Italy decertifies you, then your credit card machines stop working. You can't send wire transfers in and out of the Vatican banks. It's not just we could take over Vatican City State, the territory. It's we could effectively shut down the operation of the Holy See. Correct. Even if you moved to Avignon yeah. or whatever. Correct. Yeah. You know, it has nothing yeah. to do with territory. It has everything to do with your ability to... Your course of, your course of power yeah. in a certain way. And so, so we're just going to come in there and right. help you constitutionally reform your finances. Right. Now, right. you know... The, in the same way that if we surrounded the Bahamas... I'm just taking the Bahamas as an example, Bahamians. In the same way that if the United States Navy surrounded the Bahamas and said... Um, Hey, we've always, of course, of course, we've always been able to do this. We never have done this, but um, we're going to come and help you rewrite your constitution. And the first, the new line, the first new line of um, the Bahamian constitution is um, the Bahamas, Bahamas are, are subject, subject to the United the States. Superiority of the United States, right? Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. and then you have some nice flowery language in the second half of the sentence saying, "And the United States guarantees the the exercise of sovereign prerogatives for the Bahamas and as an international person in law." And you know, you could. But we surrounded them with our navy boats and rewrote the con- their constitution, which makes an explicit reference to our being their effective yeah. superior. Yeah. Basically, the rewritten right. Order of Malta constitution says the Order of Malta is sovereign except with regards to the Holy See. The draft, the re- right. The, so the as draft. if we said, so it's as if we said, yes, the Bahamas can keep having relationships with anybody they want, except for us because we're their boss. Yes, everybody would know pretty quickly that they weren't dealing in negotiations about. I don't know what the Bahamas negotiates about, but in negotiations about the exportation of rum or what have you, uh, they weren't really dealing with the Bahamas. They were dealing with us. Effectively, we would be declaring them to be um, a a, a puppet government or a banana republic or something like that. Exactly. And this has real and immediate effects on the order of Malta's ability to function 
um, at the diplomatic level that, you know, I've talked to people who said that they... Because this would have real and immediate effects. No, Just again for clarification, has this is a draft. All, oh, the, dra- the Constitution is a draft, but this entire Vatican intervention in the sovereignty of the order to date is already having impacts on the order's ability to operate at the diplomatic level that countries they had been engaged in negotiations with to establish full diplomatic relations have basically called them off and said, well, it doesn't look to us like you guys are all that sovereign. You know, we're going to wait and see how this resolves. Right. And okay. if this, if, and again, this was a draft, is a draft. If it is brought into law, I don't see there being any way that this doesn't cost the Order of Malta its seat at the United Nations because they're not going to give permanent observer status to basically the same country twice. Right. Which is what they would be doing. It would be the equivalent to saying the United States would like one seat in the Security Council for the United States and one seat in the Security Council for New Hampshire. Right. You know, you or our new territory, the Bahamas. Yeah. You can't. You're not going to mm-hmm. do that, even yeah. though they don't get a vote. They mm-hmm. still get. They still have, you know, prerogatives yeah. as permanent observers. So this is why the this issue is a big deal. It's a big deal because, as far as I'm concerned, the effective occupation of one sovereign entity in international law by another is a big deal in and of itself. And even if it doesn't involve tanks or real estate, it still matters from a legal perspective. But more importantly, and this is an argument I've been making since 2017, what the Holy See does to the Order of Malta, the Italian Republic will be able to do to the Holy See. Or actually, it sounds like other countries as well, sure. because it's not about territorial incursion. No, it's, it's not about, about territorial incursion. the cancellation I, of recognition and prerogative. Sure, but I'm just I'm I'm saying particularly the Italian Republic because the two countries are enmeshed in a particular way. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you know. Good luck to them if they think this is a good idea to carry on with. But anyway, we got a hold of this draft constitution last week. And so we published a story last week saying this is the threat to the order of Malta's sovereignty contained explicitly in the text of this draft constitution. Um, Cardinal Tomasi, the papal delegate who oversaw the drafting of this draft constitution, then on the day that we, the same day that we published this report, circulated a letter to the order's leadership, basically decrying the circulation of this draft amongst leaders of the order saying that this was not how things were intended to go. There was supposed to be a close hold meeting later this month to discuss the draft, at which point it would have been more appropriate to raise objections. He wasn't at all pleased about this, but stressing this is just a provisional draft. You know, you, you know, we haven't finished working on it yet. Everybody just be calm and stop basically reacting to something that isn't final, which I think is a odd way of phrasing it. Saying save your complaints until you until there's no changing it is a little bit of an odd thing to urge on people. Anyway, they didn't stop complaining. Um, earlier this week, Albert von Buzelager, the Grand Chancellor, basically wrote a letter, which we reported on, to the Order's leadership saying he would not in good conscience be able to see this, con- this constitution adopted. That it is it represented a hazard to the Order's sovereignty and that he was stepping back from the pro- from his participation in the constitutional reform process. This is the number three guy in the order who has been sort of coordinating the order's half of its work with the Holy See on redrafting the constitution. He's basically said, I'm not not going to be doing this anymore. He nominated someone else from within the order to, to sort of become part of this revision commission. So that was a big deal. And then today, today being Thursday, Cardinal Tomasi sent another letter around the order, which we reported on again, um, appearing to back down at least on the sovereignty issue, saying it was never the intention of his drafting committee or the Holy Father to touch the order's sovereignty and having a pretty clear crack at von Buselager for his letter earlier in the week, um, but basically saying 
I'm not going to engage with you people writing me angry letters about this. Uh, I'm going to engage with the select group who are part of the code revi- the Constitutional Revision Commission. I'm meeting with them later this month. I'll talk to them about it then. After that, when we have a quote-unquote final version, you can complain to me all you like ahead of the chapter general in brackets, at which point you will be forced to adopt this, whether you like it or not, because the Pope says I can constitute the chapter general however I like. So, you know, this is happening. Tomasi's going to make it happen any way he likes, but he does, at least for now, appear to have taken his metaphorical tanks off the order's lawn with regards to their sovereignty. And, and you know, again, something I hear about, uh, something I've heard about this from a lot of people trying to follow the story is basically, well, if the order's sovereign and they don't like this, then why don't they just say no? Why don't they just tell Cardinal Tomasi, we're not going to do this? They could, but part and parcel of their constitution is not just their sovereignty and international law, not just how they operate as a government, but it's also how they operate as a Catholic religious order. So if they tell the Holy See to go stick their head in a bucket because they are preserving their sovereign status and will do what they need to do to preserve their sovereign status, it's not like the Holy See is going to send the Swiss guards into their grand magistry on the Via Condotti and take it over by force. They're not. But what they will say is, well, then you can't possibly be recognized as a Catholic religious order in communion with the Holy See if your governing leadership is refusing See, the Holy I don't See. know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, the Holy See always has the nuclear option of suppressing a religious institute. But, you know, if, if the Holy See... Well, they couldn't um, suppress the Order of Malta, I don't think. But what they could do they is could, declare them in schism. They, they could suppress their juridic personality. They could suppress... Well, I... Yeah, I... They must be able to. They must be able to suppress what 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 you what one can give, one can take away. But, they, but this is the question. Be, is I don't think... I, this is another interesting thing. And I'd have to go back and check. In fact, I can go to the law right now if you, if you want to give me the time. But no, because it's part of a point that I'm making. Okay, but here's um, the point just, before you finish making the point is <laughs> I'm not sure the Order of Malta has um, public juridic personality in the church. It must qua- if it's a religious institute. No, it, it must. I, no, but I don't think it has public juridic personality because the church granted it. That's my point is because part of the revised constitution is in the same article which says the order is a subject to the holy see and the holy see will protect its prerogatives in international law and grants it public juridic personality in canon law ipso facto that's an addition to that article and so i wonder if they if you know that isn't part of the point of the draft constitution is to say no 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 we're trying to bring you under the church's the personality is a part of the is a part of the church's legal system, yeah. which indeed the Holy Father controls. Yes, there is no there is no universe in which the Holy Father can't in some way suppress their identity as a Catholic as a recognized Catholic religious institute. Yes, that is true. Right. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. So they have that nuclear option to suppress them as a religious institute, which in my mind would be to suppress their juridic personality. But maybe you want to see it differently. But to say this juridic personality is no longer a religious institute would have the same effect. Right. To say you're no longer a religious institute. And your goods are no longer bona ecclesiastica, the goods of, you know, Catholic goods, etc. Although that's probably tricky for them, too. That's very um, tricky for them. And yeah, I think okay. it plays a large yeah. part in what all of this fight is about. I want you to explain that to me then. because, But, but my point is, uh, you, you're saying, well, they're also a Catholic religious institute and the Holy See, you know, they can't resist in that way. But if, if the Holy Father said tomorrow, I'm going to just um, show up at the general chapter of 
the constitutions of the orders, Order of Friars Minor and rewrite the constitution of the Orders of, of Friars Minor um, and assert that the, order, the constitutions of the Order of Friars Minor needs to be rewritten such that it reflects the constitutions of the Society of Jesus. I'm going to make the, the, I'm going to make the Franciscans the, a, a, a new Je- the OFMs a new, a new Jesuits. Um, there would be a prerogative by which the OFMs could say, but your holiness, we have a right to develop our own constitutions. And sure, you have sort of um, full and immediate jurisdiction in the life of the church. You can come in and do this, but it is contrary to everything which is the history of religious, in, of religious life in the life of the church. Like, in other words, you can always do the nuclear option, and the Pope can always sort of legally do whatever he wants, but there is a way in which I think this notion that the Pope can just come in and tinker, it's not as if any religious institute would just sit down and say, sure, go ahead and tinker. Any religious institute would say, whoa, 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 about any Pope, would say, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. Well, the problem is the that, Order of Malta how this basically works. made this problem for themselves because they invited the Holy See in in the first place, or at least a section of them did, by complaining about the way Festing removed Boozelager. They basically yeah, they went to the Pope and said, fix this. And now the yeah. Pope is fixing this. And some of them are saying, like, hey, we don't like the way you're that's, fixing that, this. That's, you're yeah, that's not thing. the part we wanted you to fix. We wanted you to just I fix see. this little part and basically give us the keys to the whole thing. And now you're pulling the rug out from underneath to grotesquely mix metaphors. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's the problem is, you know, if, if for example – uh, well, and so the pro- I mean, the point at which the there could have been any point of resistance was when the Pope attempted to compel the resignation and abdication of Matthew Festing as Grand Master of the Order. If he had turned around and said, I love you dearly, Your Holiness, and I remain religiously obedient to you in all things pertaining to faith and morals, but I cannot, as a matter of, and there were people who advised him to do this at the time, um, I cannot, as, a mem- as the head of state of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, allow myself to have my abdication dictated to dictated to me i can't do that um then i think that probably would have been the end of the matter there would have been some quiet rumblings and i think you would have seen um some very angry um communications between the holy see and the order of Malta behind the scenes but i think in terms of sort of a constitutional crisis external to the order that would have been the end of it but what happened was festing complied buzelager was reinstated as grand chancellor and the mechanism by which that happened was this commission to investigate put together by the Secretary of State of the Vatican. And you had the papal delegate was my friend and yours, pillar reader, Cardinal Angelo Becciu. Um, right. And interestingly, there's a precedent. F- there is a, mo- a modern precedent for all of that, too. Not the letting them in. The letting them in is the but the precedent for the Pope jumping in in that way is not unlike what happened in the succession of the Society of Jesus when Father Rupe um, stepped down and and the Jesuits were Father Rupe wanted to have one successor and JP2 jumped in and said no 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 you're going to have I can't remember Father Deza or whatever it is to be the successor and then the Pope wouldn't let the Jesuits vote on a new leader for like two years so um, that kind of jumping in by a Pope into the internal life of a religious institute is not unusual what's unusual here is this unusual status of the of of the Knights of Malta right and you know uh, this is the problem is once you once you let the Vatican into your sovereign clubhouse, you've no real mechanism for throwing them out again. And right. that's where they've got to. Okay, so why is this – why is all of this important to pillar readers? Like, I, I just want to say, Ed, your coverage of this uh, – you got a copy of this draft that talked about the threat of the sovereignty. You reported that the sovereignty was threatened. And a week later, or less than a week later, the Holy See is saying – 
hey, we're not going to do that. And that's because there was a gigantic outcry and there's been coverage in newspapers around the world. And, and your reporting did that, Ed. I mean, I, I'm not trying to blow smoke up the uh, anything of the pillar, but it is true that you broke this story. There has been an international outcry against the story and the Holy See is walking back what they said they were going to do. So that's... You know, that's a very interesting, you know, journalism had an effect. Well, Mazel tov. Okay. Um, why, so in a certain way, why are we covering this? Well, we're covering this in a way that's actually making a difference in the narrative, and that's what journalism is for. But why should the people who are listening to this show pay attention to the soap opera that is the Order of Malta? Uh, for for one very simple reason, which is this. The Order of Malta's status in international law is, as near as I can make out, identical to the Holy See's status in international law. Okay, there's a slight difference in that the Holy See has um, has under its authority a piece of territory known as the Vatican City State, which they're not the same thing in international law. The Holy See exists outside of any territory. It happens that the Vatican City State, which is this sovereign piece of territory, the government of the Vatican City State is imposed by the sovereign entity in international law called the Holy See, which does it through the vicariate of the Vatican City State. But they're not the same thing. If the Vatican City State were wiped off the map tomorrow, the Holy See's personality in international law would be untouched. And that international personality, which guarantees the sovereignty of the Pope, which guarantees that the Holy Father cannot, for example, be sued in a U.S. court or brought up for hate speech for a homily he gives that somebody doesn't like in the Italian Republic or allows him to travel freely between countries and no one can take his passport away from him. All of that sovereignty exists at the same level as the Order of Malta's, as near as I can tell, in international law. They do all of the same things. And if the Holy See can, almost absent-mindedly, from what Cardinal Tomasi is saying, because he's put out this letter that didn't put it out. He circulated today, it privately. we didn't realize that this yeah, was Yeah, he, he didn't put it out. He circulated it privately. We got a hold of a copy and reported it today. But anyway, Cardinal Tomasi is trying to tell the order, we had no idea that writing that you were going to be a subject of the Holy See would touch your sovereignty. Scusi, you know, which I find laughable. But anyway, that's his, that's what he's saying. If the Holy See can almost accidentally tread out the international sovereignty of the Order of Malta, there is nothing stopping a country like the Republic of Italy from doing the same to the Holy See. If the United Nations looks at the Order of Malta, if this constitution goes through as is, and if the order, and if the United Nations looks at the Order of Malta and go, well, you are not sovereign. You are a dependent, a subject to another international reality, the Holy See. So you don't get a seat at the UN anymore. Your permanent reserve, your permanent observer seat is revoked. And then it turns to the Holy See and says, well, you kind of just annexed a sovereign entity in international law. Now, no territory changed hands or anything, but you just extinguish the sovereignty of another sovereign jurisdiction. And we we don't tend to go in for that here at the UN. And you're not actually a full member anyway. The UN could turn around and say, actually, we're taking both of your seats away. The Order of Malta, because you're no longer sovereign in the Holy See, because you just invaded the Order of Malta. Like, like that's a that's a real possibility. And more importantly... The international order is stiff, stiff with people and jurisdictions and countries and authorities and NGOs and UN committees who would love to see the Holy See's unique status in international law wound up and stopped. And the Holy See is 
the way in which it is going about handling the Order of Malta, creating a precedent for its own destruction in international law. And it terrifies me. This is not about the Order of Malta as, you know, these cool knights who, you know, run hospitals all over the world. That's great. And they do fantastic work. And it's wonderful. And yes, they're really interesting historical curiosity in international law. But that's not what this is about. The reason this matters is the Holy See is actively create is sawing the branch, the legal branch that it sits on out from under itself in international law. And let's talk about some of the consequences of that, because I think there are plenty of people who will say, yeah, but, you know, it's kind of neat that the that the Holy See is a sovereign state in international law, but St. Peter didn't have that, and, um, the you know, the people who immediately it's called true. St. And, Peter and didn't have that. And how did St. Peter's so, uh, relations with the local secular authority? N- not yeah. well, right? But there are people who would say, you know, this kind of political privilege for the church has not been a healthy thing. I, I do not agree with that, and the reason is, I think, to be the leader of the, uh, um, to be the successor of St. Peter in 2022 in the modern world, um, the the Pope, by virtue of being the head of state, has a kind of immunity that keeps him from being, you know, sued constantly in every jurisdiction in the world or uh, every attorney general in the world who wants to make a name for himself pressing charges against the Pope. Now, there are people who would say, yeah, but actually, do you think it's good that the Pope um, isn't policed by anyone or that the church isn't policed by anyone? Uh, truthfully, I do not think that um, – I think – I obviously think that the church is in need of very serious reform – because this is what I do for a living. And at the same time, I do not think that the church being subject to the jurisdiction of the Commonwealth of, or that the Pope sort of being subject to the jurisdiction of the um, state of Colorado in which I live is going to be the solution well, to in that. In terms the of church, the church's the own church's self. reform comes from the church's determination. Right, but in the church's reform. own legal self-conception, the first C is judged by no one. Right. But, but And this is and how so we get that there. That is how we understand ourselves. That is how we understand ourselves. At the same time, the church concedes to be judged for the most part by civil powers, right? We agree that uh, for the most part, um, members of church, the church hierarchy should be subject to the criminal jurisdiction of the jurisdictions in which they live, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, the only exception to that is the Pope and his curia. In our current sort of configuration of things, the church has otherwise conceded to civil laws in the place where, for, in which he lives. And there are people who say that that's a good thing and people who say that's not a good thing, but if it if we weren't doing that if 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 we did if we said from top to bottom that every cleric in the in the in the world should not sort of be judged by criminal law we'd have a very 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 weird situation on our hand and i don't know how i don't know how it would how it would work um i i see the immunity of the pope on balance as a good thing even though i understand why people might say otherwise are there other things that you see as sort of necessary elements of the church's sovereignty, not theologically. I understand the point you're making theologically. Are there other things that you think should be appreciated about the church's sovereignty in international law? Yeah. Uh, well, well, first of all, the, you know, it's not just a question of we wouldn't want, you know, it, it, the the church is holding itself above or whatever. Like, let, let's be clear. In practical terms, without the international sovereignty of the Holy See, the Pope would be permanently impeded or could be impeded at a moment's notice anytime anyone wanted to. Like the Holy See as we understand it and as it governs the universal church in the way it does today would not be able to function. The The territory in which it was located could have its servers turned off, its email accounts suspended, the phones cut off, the Pope, you know, placed incommunicado at the whim of a secular power. And that's just, you know, like the... the and not just a secular government, but a, a deplatforming secular technology company. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All of that. More to the point. How do we elect a pope? We have to have a conclave. How do we get a conclave? All the cardinals have to come to the Vatican to vote. 
How do we know that they're going to be able to get there? Every cardinal has got, in a drawer, a diplomatic passport so that they can get on a plane and no matter what's going on in the world or what country they're in or what country they're from, make sure they can get to the Vatican to vote in a conclave. Cardinal Muangbo in Burma can get out of Dodge if there's a conclave because he has to. Mm-hmm. Because he can wave the diplomatic community card if he needs to, and and the you know military dictatorship there can't impede him without causing a major diplomatic incident. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between them impeding a you know a, a minister of a foreign government versus just saying, oh, he's just a he's he's a Burmese priest. We can do what we want with him. It's nobody else's business. No, it isn't nobody else's business. It's an international incident now. The the the, the church functions as a universal global reality at a practical level dependent on the sovereign independence of the holy see this is not a boondoggle yeah okay well i'm glad we talked through it what do you see as coming next what are the next steps in all this i think you are going to see relations between the order's leadership and cardinal tomasi continue to deteriorate i suspect i mean albert von buselager coming out and basically calling I mean, he didn't do it in public, but the, the his letter was widely reported enough that he has effectively called out the Vatican's reforming project in public and said he can't a good conscience go along with this. I think that um, Tomasi is supposed to meet with the code or the Constitutional Revision Commission on the 25th. I would be very surprised if Albert Wondersloger is still the Grand Chancellor of the Order cometh the 25th. It's just my gut feeling um i think after that meeting i've heard more than a few senior knights have told me that cardinal tomasi has been fairly clear that he intends to dissolve the order's sovereign council after that meeting um and convene a grand chapter for later in the year the dissolving the sovereign council will have a couple of benefits for his reforming project the first of which is there won't be a sovereign council to have to negotiate with um it will also affect the composition of the chapter general and who can vote so it will be slightly easier. I mean, to be clear, according to the Pope and how he empowered Cardinal Tomasi, he has the legal authority, according to the Holy See, to do all of this. Now, whether the Order of Malta chooses to recognize this authority to do all this is is another matter. But of course, the Order doesn't currently have a Grand Master because their Grand Master was forced to abdicate and then his successor was elected and then he died. So they have a Lieutenant Grand Master who's governing at interim right now. But, you know, they they basically don't have a head of state of their own to fight back against any of this. Um, I think there will be some change in massaging to the language of the article in the draft constitution that we reported and has been part and parcel of all this kerfuffle. I don't know that it will be enough to satisfy the questions about the order of sovereignty that it raises. Um, phase two of all of this, and this is not going to, yeah, this, this whole thing is not going to go away, as I would say in the next couple of weeks um you can expect to see conversation shift if the sovereignty issue is is managed to I mean if that fire gets put out people can start talking about what this fight is really about or was really about in the first place which is the role of the first degree professed knights in the governance of the order in the first place because that's really what was the fight between um Buzlager and festing in the first place was who's in charge of this is it the professed religious or is it if you like the sort of quote-unquote professional class within the order that has not been resolved, but would be fairly definitively resolved by Tomasi's draft. And I think you're going to see that fight break out in public if the sovereignty issue is put to one side, because I think that's 
that's created a sort of false sense of unity and purpose amongst the orders. They all went, wait a minute, nobody wanted, nobody on either side wanted their sovereignty to go away. And if they successfully sort of diffuse that bomb, then they're going to get back to fighting about what really annoyed them about each other in the first place. Uh, it's not going to get better. I, I, I find it hard to believe Cardinal Tomasi's promises today, notwithstanding, I find it hard to believe that you can, the, the order will be credibly perceived as being sovereign this time next year. Hmm. Well, I suppose we shall see. Yeah. All right. Well, Ed, I haven't a game. Um, We're way over time. We don't have time. We have no time for games, JD. <laughs> it's only serious business to discuss. And also all that stuff about the real world and the and et cetera at the beginning. I suspect we're going to be um, editing a bit of that down. Yeah, we may well be, which you were, which you were hoping for anyway. In well, it means way. that my hate prime gets expunged from the record. So. <laughs> we'll be back next week to talk about the Order of Malta, Pope Benedict XVI, and many other things. Thank you for listening, dear friends. And if you think that reporting on these things matters, we need you to join the team. We need you to become a subscriber to the Pillar, pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe. Um, Ed talked about reporting that he did today that has shifted the narrative on an important issue, not only in the life of the church, but in international law. He did that because of our subscribers. Whatever we were able to bring you about the situation of Benedict XVI and the truth behind the sensationalized headlines that you will see in many, many places, um, a straightforward and clear account of what is actually happening, we're able to do that because of our subscribers. So if you like The Pillar, please, pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe. We need you. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed the Laplander himself, Condon. We'll be back next week. 